I guess uh, we've been working through Judges for a while, familiar with uh, a number of the characters in the book of Judges, people like Samson, Gideon, Deborah, some of the kind of well-known ones. Almost no one knows the story of Jephthah that we're going to be looking at in Judges chapter 10, because uh, the story is absolutely terrible. (laughs) I mean, really very, very terrible. Uh, Again, just to warn you up front, this story today is perhaps going to leave some of you feeling deeply troubled and unsettled. Okay, so at least you're going to be listening now uh, just to to see what it's all about. First of all, though, I want to talk to you about sausages. How many of you have ever looked on the package where it tells you the contents of a sausage? Anyone ever looked at a few of you? Um, Don't know if you're aware of this, but under current regulations here in the UK, no less than 65% of a pork sausage can be meat. Now, I say meat, but up to half of the meat can be fat, and the rest is made up of connective tissue, that's gristle and skin to you and me, and the rest is mechanically recovered meat, which if you're wondering, and I did do a summer job in a butcher's, so I know what I'm talking about here, Uh, basically mechanically recovered meat is the pulp or the paste that's made by spraying high-powered jets of water onto the animal carcasses after all the decent meat has already been removed uh, and used for something else. Other ingredients, just to pad it out, include dried bread, water, monosodium glutamate and maltodextrin. Mmm, making your mouths water, glad you came today. (laughs) Yes, and maybe you'll never eat another sausage uh, again. Uh, The point is, a sausage isn't pure meat. And many would say, is not particularly good for you. Now here's the thing, a lot of people, I think, build their face a bit like a cheap sausage. They take a little bit of something from this and mix it up with a little bit of something from that and the result is a concoction that at the end of the day you can't really call Christian and it's more than simply bad for you I suggest is actually spiritually toxic and that is what I think we're going to see with the story of Jephthah this morning he's got a little bit of the meat of faith mixed with a whole lot of the monosodium glutamate and maltodextrin of the culture that he lives in. Just so you know where we're heading, just for the sake of absolute clarity, I'm going to take quite a while walking through the story, making a few points, trying to explain it, because there is quite a lot of explaining to do as we go, before wrapping it up very quickly at the end by just highlighting four key lessons from this story for our lives today. Okay, let's dive in. I'm going to pick it up in Judges chapter 10 and verse 6. Again, this is a recurring theme in the story of Judges, again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They served the images of Baal and Ashtoreth and the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon and Philistia. They abandoned the Lord and no longer served him at all. And so the Lord burned with anger against Israel And he turned them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites who began to oppress them. As we've seen through this series, 
by now this is becoming a bit of a familiar pattern with the people of Israel. Every time the Israelites worship the idols of another nation, that nation eventually ended up oppressing them. But here in this passage, the author just inserts a little twist. Instead of crying out to God to rescue them and save them, the Israelites here cry out for deliverance to the very gods that have enslaved them in the first place. And so, despite their pain and despite their misery, Israel chased even harder after the idols that had let them down and brought them into so much trouble. Let's just pause there for a moment. Because I think it's easy to see the futility of this in Israel from our vantage point in a different time in history and culture. But for all of our supposed sophistication and wisdom and advance and learning, the reality is human hearts haven't changed one bit. When sin enslaves us, I'd suggest we still try to find deliverance by going even harder after the very thing that enslaved us in the first place. It's like we think we can never be happy until we have this particular thing. And so we'll do anything to try and grab hold of it. Or we obsess about not having it. And when we do get it, we never feel like we quite have enough of it. Or we're paranoid about losing it. And so we end up making these really destructive choices to hang on to it or get more of it. Like, I need more money, and so I'll work harder and harder and harder, even though it's burning me out and wrecking my family life. Or I have to be beautiful to have power and significance and joy, so I'll starve my body to reach a certain size and hate myself when I'm not there, or I'm desperate to be liked. So I'll make all of these compromises to try and win people's approval, and when they turn around and stab me in the back, I'll compromise even more to try to make them like me again. All the time, we we see our problems not as worshipping an idol, but not worshipping an idol quite enough. Have you ever stopped to consider maybe just maybe the idol itself is wrong i'll tell you that's perhaps one of the most helpful lessons from the book of judges maybe you've inadvertently chosen the wrong thing in which to try to find power or joy or significance i don't know maybe the reason you are unhappy in love isn't because you haven't found Mr. Right, but because ultimate happiness was never ever supposed to be found in him anyway. Maybe the reason your spouse complains that they don't quite enjoy being married to you so much these days, even though you make more money than you've ever made, it's because you've kind of become its slave and it's changing you. Or maybe the reason you kind of feel insecure and anxious and worried a lot of the time is because you're putting your hope, you're putting your confidence in things that will never satisfy you. There's a passage in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 2 verse 13. It gives us perhaps the clearest, most vivid description of what sin is in the whole Bible. First of all, it's rejecting God. Secondly, it's replacing God. 
Here's what God says in this passage. For my people have done two evil things. First of all, they have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns or wells that can hold no water at all. I'm trying to explain the background to this so you, you feel the full impact, the full force of these words. Back in those days, uh, a bit like it is today, w- water was a precious commodity, maybe more precious back then because you couldn't just turn on a tap uh, and get water. You had to go hunting for water. So the best thing to do is to, to find a natural underground spring with fresh living water flowing out of it, pure Buxton spring water. That's the kind of the, the pinnacle. And God says, look, that is me. I'm the one who gives you joy. I'm the one who gives you peace. I'm the one who gives you hope and love. I'm the one who gives you significance and security. Life itself. But for whatever reason, you rejected me. And because that left you parched and gagging, you started digging these other cisterns. Now, a cistern is what you would dig in the desert to try to find water. The problem is it would develop cracks and leak and end up getting muddy and polluted. It was rank. It was disgusting. It was horrible. You just didn't want to drink that kind of water. It was nothing like the pure water from a spring. And that right there is a pretty graphic illustration of what sin does to you. You exchange God for something that can never satisfy you. And you blindly keep digging cistern after cistern, searching for the satisfaction that can only ever be found in God. It's like dig, 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 deeper, 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 deeper still. This new relationship, this grade, this achievement, this level of income, this outfit, this gadget, this house, that there's got to be permanent water here somewhere. At some point, I suggest you need to wake up to the fact it's the wrong well. And eventually, that's what happens in today's story. Verse 10, finally, they cried out to the Lord for help, saying, we've sinned against you because we've abandoned you as our God and have served the images of Baal. The Lord replied, did I not rescue you from the Egyptians? The Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Mayanites. When they oppressed you, you cried out to me for help and I rescued you. Yet you have abandoned me and served other gods. So I will not rescue you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them rescue you in your hour of distress. Now don't miss this. For the first time in Judges, God says no to the cries of his people. His people come to him pleading for help and he turns them away. Why? Well, I suggest it's one thing for the wayward prodigal to come home in repentance. Look, God will always, always, always receive someone like that with arms open wide. Always. But imagine a serially unfaithful wife 
pleading for her husband's security and provision just until she finds another man who's willing to take her on. That's kind of the equivalent of what's happening here in this story. These people, in their heart of hearts, don't want God for God. They're just in pain and want somebody, anybody really, to make it stop. There's been no change of heart, no change of attitude towards God. There's no heartfelt conviction, hatred of what they've done. Yep, they're sorry for the consequences of their sin, but they're not really sorry for the sin itself. They're effectively treating God like one of their other idols. They're simply wanting to use him to try and get out of trouble. I think this is really important. You see, I think it's possible for us sometimes to come to God in an idolatrous way. You know, I've seen this happen so many times to so many people over the years. It's like you get in a jam, you get in a problem, you get found out perhaps, you, you get scared. And in the heat of the moment, you call out to God and make all kinds of promises to Him. Like, God, if you do this, if you change this situation, then I'll change. I'll start giving. I'll never go back there again. But the moment the danger passes, so does your resolve to seek God. And people look at that and say, well, what happened to their faith? Well, it it was never real to begin with. The the issue isn't really whether you look to God when you're in trouble. I mean, you'll look anywhere to get you out of trouble. The question is whether you'll follow him faithfully the same when the immediate danger has passed. Are you using God or are you worshipping God? The people of Israel, they weren't worshipping God. They were using him. A bit like the unfaithful wife who uses her husband's security so that she can merely go and seek other lovers. But believe it or not, finally, eventually, the people of God in this story, they do get it. Verse 15, but the Israelites pleaded with the Lord again and said, we have sinned punish us as you see fit and he please rescue us today from our enemies and then the Israelites put aside their foreign gods and they served the Lord see how different that is to what they said previously in verse 10 verse 10 they're saying effectively we want peace from you here in verse 15 they're saying we want peace with you even if it continues to mean trouble for us look I'd rather not have trouble, of course, but to have you, that's the essential part. You see, that's true repentance. That at the end of the day, I don't care if it gets easier or harder as long as I have you, as long as you're with me, you're enough. So the Israelites in this story eventually genuinely repented. And we read, the Lord was grieved by their misery. I love that phrase. Gives you a little glimpse to how God feels about his people. He hurts with them. He feels their pain. He's deeply distressed at a heart level by the mess they're making of their lives. It affects him. And he says, enough. And he raises up a saviour to deliver them. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior he was the son of Gilead but his mother was a prostitute Gilead's wife 
also had several sons. And when these half-brothers grew up, they chased Jephthah off the land. You will not get any of our father's inheritance, they said, for you are the son of a prostitute. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Soon he gathered a band of worthless rebels following him. So, just to get this straight, Jephthah was the illegitimate son of a prostitute who was driven out of his home by his own half-brothers. In other words, I think it's probably fair to say he, he came from a deeply dysfunctional family and he flees to a faraway land where he surrounds himself with a band of rebels and becomes kind of like this crime boss. So Jephthah, he's a complete outcast, a criminal from a broken home. And yet God raises him up to be Israel's saviour. That's by way of an aside. I want to see whatever your background, there is hope for you. Whatever your background, however you think your past might disqualify you, however you feel, well, because of this, God can never use me. Because of that in my life, well, I've blown it once and for all. No, regardless of your background, God in his grace and his power is able to raise you up and use you to bring salvation to others. It's one of the things we learn in this story. Verse 4, at about this time, the Ammonites began their war against Israel. When the Ammonites attacked, the elders of Gilead sent for Jephthah in the land of Tob. The elder said, come and be our commander. Help us fight the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to them, hang on a moment. Aren't you the ones who hated me and drove me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? In other words, Jephthah responds just like God did. You don't really want me. You just want to use me. And so they come back in verse 8 and they plead again, no, 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 we are really sorry this time. They say, if you come home, look, you can be in charge. You can have whatever you want. And so Jephthah finally agrees and he returns home to be their ruler and the commander of their army. Now, to cut a long story short, he doesn't go to war with the Ammonites straight away. At first, he, he seeks a peaceful resolution with them. But when that fails, there is no option but to go to war. Verse 13, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Just remember that promise, it's going to become important as we read on the story. And so verse 32 Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites and the Lord gave him victory. He crushed the Ammonites, devastating about 20 towns from Aror to an area near Minith and as far away as abel Keramim. In this way, Israel defeated the Ammonites. When Jephthah returned home to Mizpah, remember the promise he'd, he'd made to God, when he returned home, his daughter came out of the house to meet him, playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his one and only child. 
He had no other sons or daughters. When he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried. You have completely destroyed me. Like it was her fault. I mean, craziness. You have completely destroyed me. You have brought disaster on me. For I've made a vow to the Lord and I cannot take it back. And she said, Father, if you've made a vow to the Lord, you must do to me what you have vowed. For the Lord has given you a great victory over your enemies, the Ammonites. But first of all, let me at least do this one thing. Let me go up and roam in the hills and weep with my friends for two months, because I will die a virgin. You may go, Jephthah said. And he sent her away for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never have children. When she returned home, her father kept the vow that he had made and she died a virgin. I'm sure you'd agree. This horrific story begs at least a couple of questions. I mean, for starters... Why on earth did Jephthah make this vow in the first place? Why? Let me make a couple of suggestions. First of all, I reckon at least in part it was because he was desensitized to violence. I mean, this was just the way the pagan cultures around him did things. Human life back then was cheap because the culture around Jephthah was violent He let that worldly violence creep in and live alongside his other beliefs. Now that being said, this still seems unspeakably horrific to us, doesn't it? I I warned you that this was a terrible, terrible story. It really is. But I think it seems horrific to us because violence is no longer our idol of choice. Many people at other times, other places, they'd probably be astounded at how much money Christians in our culture spend on themselves or the extent to which we have allowed worldly attitude towards sex and sexuality just creep in and mingle alongside our belief in God. It's like our culture idolizes those things to the point that Anything you sacrifice for them, well, that's okay, so long as it's fulfilling your needs and you're happy. And so, before we shake our heads in bewilderment, we do need to wake up to the fact that maybe, perhaps, possibly, we commit similar excesses with the idols in our lives. And we don't wince nearly as much as we should at the things we have allowed to creep into our lives first explanation here's the second one back then that was just how you pleased pagan gods you offered sacrifices to try to gain their favor and the greater the sacrifice the greater the favor you could expect to earn from your god but god himself never ever ever puts this out as a requirement to get his attention or his favor in fact he downright forbids it in Deuteronomy 18 verse 10 where he categorically says never ever sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. Now some of you perhaps you're sitting there thinking ha I've seen that the, the chink in this argument. 
what about Abraham and Isaac? Anyone who's thinking that? If you are, good question. But that was a test of faith and obedience. God never got him to go through with it. It was just seeing whether he was willing to obey him. And then he stepped and said, no, don't do it. This story here is an attempt by Jephthah to pay God off, to try and negotiate with him, to twist his arm. So it's totally different. If you like, Jephthah has mixed all kinds of manufactured meat paste and maltodextrin into his faith in God. And he's come up with some things that perhaps on the surface looks like the meat of faith, but is really not faith at all. So here's the second question. I think we can all agree that Jephthah was pretty daft to make the vow in the first place. Second question, why did he then keep his vow? I mean, maybe you could excuse him for any zeal saying something stupid. But after he saw it was his own daughter, and he sat there and considered it for two months, and then still went through with it. What's that all about? How could he keep such a dreadful vow. Ultimately, I don't know. But I suggest maybe he kept it for the same reason he made it. It's like he has no concept of the grace of God. He felt like he had to earn God's favour by making sacrifices to merit it. And now he feels like if he doesn't keep this horrific vow, well, God will punish him in some way. But I tell you, that is such a warped view of God. That is not at all what God is like. At the end of the day, God wants only one kind of human sacrifice. The self-sacrifice of offering him the lordship of every area of our lives. And even this isn't to try to gain or secure his favour. No, it's in response to it. As Paul puts it in Romans 12 verse 1, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. And so, should Jephthah have kept his vow? No, absolutely not. He should have said, God, you never said you'd give me victory only if I sacrificed something. And so instead of fulfilling this wicked vow that I made because I erroneously thought I could purchase your grace, now I repent of making this promise in the first place. I repent of thinking there was something I could do to try to earn your favor and I receive your grace for what it is, a free gift. Listen, this is the gospel this is the good news. You never have to make promises or sacrifices to God to try to earn His favor or His blessing on your life. And I say that because I kind of feel that some of you may come here on a Sunday and, and in your heart you're making God all kinds of promises. You're saying, okay God, I'll give you this. Oh God, I'll do that. Oh God, I'll never do this again. I'll make this sacrifice so that you'll accept me. So that you might bless me. It's like you make vows to God, promises to God, in the hope that buys you a little bit of favor for the week ahead. But from beginning to end, God's favor, God's 
blessing is a free gift. Our standing with God has nothing to do with our works, our performance, our sacrifices, what we do or what we don't do. There is only one deal that God will ever make with us. His righteousness for your absolute surrender. That is the pure meat of the gospel with no manufactured meat paste or maltodextrin mixed in. Well, as dreadful, as awful, as tragic as this story is already, Jephthah's family troubles are only just beginning. Chapter 12, then, after all of that, the people of Ephraim, Jephthah's own countrymen, they mobilized an army and crossed over the Jordan River to Zaphon. They sent this message to Jephthah, why didn't you call for us to help you fight against the Ammonites? We're going to burn down your house with you in it. Now just to say, if Owen doesn't ask you to be on the refreshment rotor, if he overlooks you to be on the host team, please don't respond like this. <laughs> okay, just, just don't go there. Okay, I've got that out of there. You, you're happy with that. Great. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Jephthah, who, if you remember earlier in the story, he's tried diplomacy with the Ammonites, his enemies. He doesn't do that with his own people. No, he immediately calls his men to arms. Verse 4, so Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and attacked the men of Ephraim and defeated them. Jephthah captured the shallow crossings of the Jordan River, and whenever a fugitive from Ephraim tried to go back across, the men of Gilead would challenge him, are you a member of the tribe of Ephraim, they would ask. If the man said, no, I'm not, they would tell him to say, Shibboleth. If he was from Ephraim, he would say, Sibboleth because people from Ephraim cannot pronounce the word correctly. Let's do a little test. <laughs> On the count of three, say shibboleth. One, two, three. Ah, oh, you're all fine. You're, you're okay. You're let off. But here's what happened. This is awful. If they said shibboleth, they would take the person and kill them at the shallow crossings of the Jordan. In all, 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah judged Israel for six years. When he died, he was buried in one of the towns of Gilead. Just to wrap all of this up, very quickly, what can we learn from this? I mean, there's got to be some reason for looking at it rather than depressing us. What can we learn from this? Well, four quick lessons. Number one, I've said it already, just to highlight again, I think we are way more influenced by our culture than perhaps we realize. Now, it's easy for us to see this in Jephthah, isn't it? But perhaps not quite so easy to see it in ourselves. We do need to ask ourselves where perhaps we have done this. It's so easy just to absorb the values of the culture around us. A lot of the time, I think we don't even realize the way we Think about romance, gender, sexuality, identity, what we do with our leisure time, what we watch, how much we drink, how we use our money, our attitude towards our possessions and stuff, how we crave fulfillment. 
life itself tends to be shaped more by the society around us than it is by the Word of God. And reaction to that. Some people, they withdraw from the culture altogether. And I understand where that impulse in Christians comes from. But actually that's not what the Bible teaches either. No, we're to enter into the culture, but critically. Affirming what we can and confronting what we must. And the only way to really do this is to know the Word of God more deeply even than you know your culture. You, you don't keep yourself pure by isolating yourself from the world. The only way is to have the Word of God so deeply inside you that you can resist the lies of the world outside of you. Jeff, I didn't know it, but he was more shaped by the pagan culture around him than he was by the teaching of the Scriptures. And it cost his daughter and 42,000 Israelites their lives. Which leads me to the second lesson. I think our idolatry has devastating effects on the people around us. Listen, the idolatries that we cherish in this country, they have effects every bit as devastating on others as Jephthah's was on his daughter. For starters, our appetite for pornography is created a sex industry where the average age of the girl who enters it is 13 years old. 190,000 babies were aborted in the UK in 2016. 1.6 million people in the UK, mostly teenagers, have been diagnosed with anorexia or bulimia, which happens at least in part because of how highly we've exalted the idol of a perfect figure. And so I say it again, you need to ask God to help you see your idolatrous blind spots. Because those blind spots have the potential to end up burning not only you, but the lives of the people around you. By all means, please, ask God to use you. But just as importantly, ask God to keep revealing where idols have replaced him. Because really the greatest gift you can give to the people around you is a heart that's fully devoted to God. Lesson number three. God's grace is so often a really hard thing for us to grasp. Yeah, we sing about it, we talk about it, but it's a hard thing for us to grasp and apply to our own lives. Way back in the very beginning, the Garden of Eden, first lie of the serpent was to make humans disbelieve that God had their best interests in mind. And since then, We've always had this tendency to feel like we have to control God, to pay Him, to deserve Him, that we can't simply trust God to love and bless us. So here's my question. In what ways would you live differently if you genuinely, really, deep down believed that God was utterly committed to you, to love you, 
to bless you, to work and give what's best for you. Now I admit that's hard to grasp because everything in us wants to earn our way through our own efforts. Religion says do, but however hard you try, it's never fully done. But the gospel says believe and it's already done. And everything you do, it springs from this belief. So simple. It's so hard to grasp and keep living in the good of. Be honest, where do you not get this? Where have you effectively added the monosodium glutamate of works into the pure meat of God's grace? And then lesson number four. We desperately need a better judge. We really do. That's been one of the recurring themes through the story of the book of Judges. Here in this account, Jephthah, he was a saviour, but a very flawed saviour. Certainly not the true saviour that Israel needed. But he at least gives us a glimpse of the true and better judge that was coming. You see, like Jephthah, Jesus was driven from his brothers. Reading the Gospels, he was despised, he was rejected. But unlike Jephthah, we didn't have to plead with him and call him back to come and help us and save us. No, he ran back of his own will to save us when he couldn't bear our sufferings any longer. Jephthah, he started his deliverance with diplomacy, but when that didn't quite work out, he wasn't afraid to fight killing not only thousands of Ammonites, but fellow Israelites as well, even his own daughter. Yet with Jesus, when pleading didn't work, he effectively took the war into himself. When it came to die, it was his life, not ours he took. And Jesus, fortunately, didn't take us to the River Jordan and threaten to kill us if we didn't say shibboleth. No, he tenderly led us to the cross and pronounce salvation over our lives. Jephthah believed we could only find favour with God through extreme sacrifices. Jesus offered favour with God as a free gift because he'd already paid the price in full himself. Jephthah was a saviour of Israel, but a deeply, deeply, deeply flawed saviour. And so he, like all the other judges we've been looking at, he points us to Jesus, the one true, perfect Saviour. Ultimately, it is in Christ and Christ alone that we find 100% pure salvation. That is the meat of Christianity. It's the pure, unadulterated grace of God received as a free gift. Listen, faith in the grace of God is the only way to health in Christianity. For those here today who I don't know, feel like you've blown it, you're acutely aware of ways you've messed up, maybe you feel that God can never forgive you, never love you, never truly accept you. For all those who maybe are desperately trying to earn your way to God, or maybe the other way around, feel like God owes you because of your performance. Here's what you need to know. God's acceptance, God's favour, 
is always and everywhere given as a free gift, not as a reward for your performance, not as a reward for perfect righteousness, not as a response to our extreme sacrifice, but as a gift of righteousness from God for all who will simply admit how badly they need it and receive it for what it is, a gift 